0: Hey and welcome to Deeper Than Data, the podcast where we get to know the scientists deeper than their data to find out they are passionate about bringing science to those across the country and that they met their best friends because of Harry Potter. Or that they feel bad for molasses in the kitchen cupboard because it just wants to be used and it will likely just outlast us all. Maybe the last one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. Up top, per usual, tell a friend about the podcast. The podcast audience is growing, but we will need more to get ad support. Plus, telling a friend could really help them out, too. Today's guest is a good friend and a podcast teammate. Rounding out the series on the podcast team, let's get to it with fellow science communicator, Lauren Strader. Hey, Lauren, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. And of course, you are another member of the podcast team, out the podcast team series, which is very exciting. I am confident everyone will think you're just another great addition to the podcast team as well. So welcome on the flip end. Next, could you provide me your name and the pronouns you prefer?
1: My name is Lauren Schrader, and I use she, her, hers pronouns.
0: Fantastic. I will go on to a physical description, if you could provide that, please.
1: Um, My physical description, I've been referred to as very Dutch looking. I'm fairly tall, blonde, thin. Uh, I wear glasses most days.
0: And that is more Dutch the country versus Dutch oven.
1: (laughs) Generally, yes.
0: Yes, you are not made out of steel. I can confirm that. (laughs) (laughs) And then any identities about yourself you'd like to highlight?
1: So I am a public health advocate, science communicator, female queer scientist.
0: And what roles are you doing on campus?
1: So currently I am a PhD candidate in physiology under the cellular and molecular biology program. So I spend most days doing research and I will be starting my fifth year this year.
0: And also about to wrap up. So you, Julia, Jevin, and I are all trying to transition into the next mode of life uh, about the same time, which is exciting. And we can all commiserate about it. Um, but before we get there, we're going to go with the famous question that brings us back in time. Who was your first crush?
1: Ah, uh, My first crush. So... In probably about second grade, all of the cute boys were named Ben, and my crush was on Ben B. He was he was the nice one. And you know, he moved away in fifth grade, and sometimes I wonder where Ben B is right now.
0: Is he the one that got away?
1: <laughs> he might have been.
0: Yeah, you had that many Bens in your class?
1: We did, and I was one of many Laurens also, so I was always Lauren S. Ah, uh, the 90s.
0: Yeah, I don't think I met my first other Ben until seventh grade when there were like four or five of us.
1: <laughs> what a moment.
0: What a moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was identity crisis <laughs> there. Um, so I asked Jevin this, and this was a really fun question. And I'll ask you this too. What was your childhood bedroom like?
1: Oh um it was it actually is funny because it looks a lot like most of the bedrooms i've had and like since then uh wood floors really bright and sunny and my parents had gone with this like very 90s like um, teal and rose color scheme so everything matched and they still have the dresser at their house it was actually a mid-century dresser and I love that kind of furniture so when I found out later that they had just painted over this original wood I was really sad about that I don't think I cared when I was you know five years old but uh, if they had let me have a say in it I'm sure I would have uh, done differently.
0: Was there anything in this bedroom besides this dresser?
1: Uh, yeah. So I'm trying to remember, I definitely had some like fish tanks over the years where I would keep like frogs and other things that I found out in the backyard. Um, and then at one point I had an inflatable chair in it that I just put right in the center. And I thought that that seemed like the sensible thing to do. I was, you know, trying to furnish my own space by that point. And it was, it was this big purple inflatable chair.
0: Did your, uh, bedroom change over time?
1: Uh, yeah. So that was, yeah, I'm, that would be up to like probably middle school. And then after that, I think I went through a lot of phases of changing my own bedroom. I really like creating spaces. And so I would probably rearrange my bedroom like once every few months I like painted when I was probably, I don't know, 15 or so I painted my room, this like bright, bright blue color and just made a lot of really horrible decisions. And uh, my parents just let me do whatever I wanted with it. Luckily, they gave me full creative control. It even expanded into other parts of their house that I would start uh, messing around with. And luckily, nobody really cared too much and just let me do what I wanted.
0: Well, that's experimenting uh, and doing science in a visual way. And I know this about like you've always had, at least since I've known you, a knack for, I think, design and visual arts. So it sounds like that started, maybe middle schoolish, high schoolish. Was your like penchant for science also starting around then?
1: Um, I would say that my interest in science was always kind of uh, unrecognized. I mean, like I said, when I was when I was really young, I spent a lot more time outside than I ever was, you know, watching TV or anything. I my favorite thing to do was just to explore. We had this like creek in my backyard. It was very small. Um, but then I would go down to, um, parks near my house and just be finding anything I could that was in the water. I loved playing in the water and I would bring all, like I said, bring all the things back. And I remember having all of my mom's measuring cups I took from the kitchen and had them all in the backyard filled with dirt and like little like specimens that I found. I don't think she ever reclaimed those. Like they just belonged to the outside after that. We just baked less. and I think that really it was more as I got older, maybe in high school, where I still didn't recognize that I was really that interested in science. But I was always asking a lot of questions, especially about like health and my body and what was happening, um, you know, to, to humans in these kind of ways. And uh, didn't know it at the time, but that was what really fueled all of the rest of my academic career from then on out.
0: Yes, yeah, so you, you grew up in... Bloomington, Indiana, and went to Indiana University in Bloomington as well. In fact, remember correctly, you did anthropology.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yes, cool. Got it. Um, (laughs) And it just makes me think like, and when I was thinking about your life trajectory, that human health aspect has always been there. I think it's shaped and become more narrowed. But I would imagine like doing anthropology in university was also kind of eye opening to see just where everything could go.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting a lot of people hear that I did anthropology as an undergrad degree and assume I did a lot of work with cultural anthropology, which I did some, but my, the thing that really caught my eye was all the biological anthropology and the, anytime they would talk about the aspects of health as they pertain to our evolved bodies, that was the stuff, those classes where I just like was glued to the lectures, um, really excited about thinking about what was different about our current environment from our previous environment and how we might have created different health problems that we currently have, which in my mind was really wonderful because that meant the solutions should also be pretty obvious. I mean, not necessarily very doable all the time, but it kind of gives a nice roadmap of solutions if you think about health um, through an evolutionary lens.
0: Did you have any interest in like other biological things like species health or anything or is it just
1: <laughs> no i was uh never concerned about anything besides humans it was a uh, very uh anthros anthropocentric, anthropocentric kind of thing
0: that's fair i mean humans are pretty important they're like most of your family and friends.
1: (laughs) Although anytime if I if I'm around like my my parents my cat or my dog at my parents house I will pay a lot more attention to how they're doing in their health than I ever did before just because I'm kind of applying everything I know about human health to them.
0: Were you involved in any clubs or orgs like in your undergrad?
1: Yeah so I helped kind of bring the Undergraduate Anthropology Association back into existence. It hadn't been Happening for maybe ten years and my roommate and I kind of kicked it back into gear. Um, and then also I was a very active member for a couple years of the Harry Potter Society, which I thought was a joke when I first saw that they had meetings and I I showed up to one of the meetings, not I had no idea what it was gonna be like, and ended up meeting pretty much all of my like lifelong friends from college there. So those fateful decisions that seem small at the time, that was definitely one of them.
0: Did you have you ever like checked out Potterland, or have an interest to go there?
1: You mean like in, in Florida? Yes. I don't Pinterest think it's two, right? I don't think it's called Potterland. Uh, yeah, what is it called? Harry Harry Potter uh, Universal Studios. The answer is no. I have not gone. I uh, I've I've had friends who've gone. I I think that my my like peak interest in Harry Potter it peaked probably right before that that opened. So someday I'll probably go. I I saw a Snapchat the other day of one of my adult friends there, and I thought he was with his son. And as it turns out, he just took a trip by himself and he was walking around the Diagon Alley in a a wizard robe as as an adult. And I I really respected that.
0: Yeah, you can. I think they have like some roller coasters dedicated. I don't know anything about Harry Potter. There's like (laughs) in one of these movies, there's an opening scene. Where you're taking a bus or or a...
1: Yeah, the night bus. That's the third movie. Yeah.
0: There's a roller coaster or a ride dedicated to like that. And apparently it's pretty fun. My my family's gone and done it. So I can imagine like technology maybe in the future is like you can take calls while on that ride. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be totally fine.
1: Have you... You haven't read... Have you read the books?
0: I started reading the first one as a kid and read the first chapter. And I was like, nah, this isn't for me. And stuck with it, um,
1: stuck with not reading them.
0: yeah. <laughs> and like the movies are totally fine. I feel like I feel like I was trying a decent amount in even middle school, maybe high school, trying to just not be into mainstream things. and I, I think could see that. Part of it was <laughs> part of it was probably that, and also I think there was a genuine interest, like I actually gave it a good faith effort.
1: You read one chapter.
0: I read one chapter.
1: I I think you could have given it a little more, but, I mean, you saw the movie, so you got the gist, at least.
0: Yeah, I mean, the alternative for me was, like, watching The Simpsons, like, Arrested Development.
1: (laughs) You Uh, were one of those kids.
0: I was that kid. (laughs) Which, for listeners, might explain more things. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Yeah, I totally space that you uh, did that. What? Was there, like, a, a characteristic that brought everyone together for like the Harry Potter society or was it just like everyone of all different backgrounds showing up?
1: I think a lot of the people there were well there was a mix but there was definitely a theme of the very your nerdiest friends in high school like people who were into a lot of other fandoms who went to you know a lot of comic-con and all of the other kind of conventions and, and so it was an interesting an interesting group because I came in not necessarily from that background and I think, yeah, it was a kind of blending of all of our uh, personalities and it, it was pretty great. I think that it was just one of the most kind of, um, I don't know, goofy and fun groups to be around because nobody was taking anything too seriously and, and it, was, it was a really great uh, group of friends to have in college.
0: And you were also working while doing your undergrad, correct?
1: Yeah, I worked for uh, not every year I was an undergrad, but most of them. Yeah, I was at different places and restaurants um, most of the time.
0: Did you feel like any of the skills from the restaurant business, like transferred to uh, maybe not even undergrad, but now I feel like when you're having to interact with people as an adult... It's like those soft skills, I think they're really transferable, but you might not see the value when you're in undergraduate. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean that's an interesting question. I think that a lot of, I mean, people think about the customer-facing interactions as being an important part, which it definitely is. But I think more of what I gained from it was just all the teamwork aspects of it. Because I mean, people you can definitely tell people who've worked, you know, in the industry, restaurant industry versus those who haven't. There are just some things that you just like get. Um, and yeah, it's almost like some being part of some big play or, you know, production every morning or before dinner time at a restaurant where each person is like a cog in the machine and we all are so reliant on each other. And it honestly, I think that helped me, you know, I mean, I had done obviously a lot of like, you know, I I worked with people before that, but really relying so much on other people and, you know, being a big, uh, an important part of this larger machine was, I think, a really incredible experience to have.
0: And I think that's especially transferable um, working in a lab now and probably going forward when you've got, you're going to have people underneath you. I wanted to also see during your undergrad and maybe slightly after is this is when you're starting to get really interested in science communication.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know that I could even pinpoint a moment when I got interested in science communication. I mean, definitely when I... Well, I I always had a lot of questions that I wanted to have, you know, I was looking for answers to about public health related things. And oftentimes when I was doing these kind of investigations, like I remember there was this lab methods class that I took where the final project was to design your own experiment. This was an undergrad. And it was at the time when I was working at this restaurant that... not gonna name names about but they didn't have very good cleaning policies and i would tell my manager like we need to be using better products to clean the tables after customers are here and and he was always like kind of blowing that information off like oh no i don't know so my experiment for that uh class was to take samples of our cleaning products and i um tested them on like plates of e coli against like other cleaning products that we had in the biology lab and uh, I think I shared those results with like my coworkers and other people who I, I was excited about my work so I think I was doing a lot of science communicating um, before I realized that I really liked it and and really I, before I realized what, that it was a thing in and of itself um, that was probably closer like when I started getting further into public health and and further in my master's degree and grad work
0: yeah I think it was similar path not like you know, doing the same experiment, but just telling people facts and getting excited about it. Mm -hmm. And I think mostly to people who are receptive, but definitely I know for some that were not receptive, if I'm just like reciting plant facts at them or dragging them to (laughs) the, the greenhouse that was on campus. Did that keep going? Or did you notice that was a, just something that you were leaning towards, like after undergraduate?
1: um i mean i would say it was probably by the time i mean i knew i liked like i said i knew I like the health pieces i pursued my my mph and i think that really me recognizing some of the shortcomings of work in public health that i learned about in that degree is when i started to think about science communication and the importance of it and i think Really, this this idea didn't fully form until I got to UW and I found out that we had a science communications department, life science communications, um, and started taking classes in it and pursued a minor. When I started, like, really fully recognizing science communication as its own field and just how important it was. Yeah,
0: and it's it's funny, like when I when I talked to you and Jevin and was coming up with the concept of the podcast, like. All three of us, after being in seminars or going to workshops, I think would always debrief on like how things were actually communicated and how much we were not always, but often disappointed and how some facts were coming across. And I, are you at the point where if you're listening to science and it's poorly communicated, do you get angry? Like, I think I'm just I'm just becoming irate and having a hard time focusing on anything else besides the communication that's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are obviously always different audiences. And I think the most angry I get is as it pertains to human health and especially with the past year with COVID, when I can see what incredibly important repercussions it has when you are doing a poor job communicating it that's when i'm really like pulling my hair out like you know if there's somebody in a seminar who's just doing a you know not spending a lot of energy making their presentation interesting like well could be better but the consequences aren't quite so um uh, important but yeah i think it's the public health stuff that really gets me
0: yeah and just as like a just a crazy coincidence too like we you and i met in a grants writing class and then soon learned that we had gone to undergrad at the same place at the same time and then did the same master's program, staggered slightly, but worked with some of the same people as well and then never actually met until UW.
1: So we both moved to Wisconsin.
0: (laughs) Yes. And the same year um, and then wound up taking some of the same courses too So yeah, small world. Pretty but I'm small. glad yeah. Glad it brought you like into my life, uh, to work on this and also have you as a friend. I don't really have a good segue for that. I was just like
1: <laughs> I have to throw
0: that there because it's so unbelievable. Um the fact that we used to live again at different times, but like three houses away from each yeah. other at some point. <laughs> yeah. Also bizarre.
1: For like six years, we lived in the same town. We probably passed each other at the Kroger, and then we didn't meet until we both moved to Wisconsin.
0: Because you even took a, a, a class that I was an undergraduate teaching assistant for. Possibly in the same years, but we still don't remember. I
1: want to ba- go backwards, rewind through the footage, and, and see the, the moments that our paths crossed when we were like both waiting in line at like a, a restaurant or something.
0: Do you remember the... The guy at the bloomington farmers market who always had a parrot
1: yes oh yeah
0: for, for some reason i feel like he's the key in solving this like <laughs> i just imagine like there's a picture of him that maybe i took or like vice versa and like you're in the background
1: he's gonna be the common thread
0: <laughs> but if we go talk to them at the same time like that's when the universe collapses or something.
1: <laughs> so someday we'll figure it out yeah and then everything will just go black and the simulation will be over because we broke it
0: okay going back now to present um you're kind of wrapping up your phd time which is very exciting um what is your work on briefly if you're gonna tell a friend or family member
1: so my current research my my dissertation research is about circadian rhythms and circadian rhythms are just the daily 24-hour patterns um our bodies do things in so the fact that you usually get hungry for dinner around the same time each day usually get tired and go to bed around the same time each day that's all part of your circadian rhythm so my research is trying to understand more about these patterns because we know that if they get disrupted say you um, work a shift work schedule and you're going to bed and waking up at different times every day you might be at higher risk for diseases so i'm trying to investigate more about that question looking specifically at people's blood to see if we can Uh, see genetic uh, biomarker changes uh, looking at people's uh, gene expression to determine kind of what's happening if they get circadian disruption.
0: Yeah, when explaining that, do you feel yourself like getting excited to try to get some of those answers are... Are you over it at this point, (laughs) as some grad students are?
1: I think that, yeah, there are some days that I'm definitely over it, especially during the pandemic and just having just so much time sitting and staring at my computer. But I did start getting some of my RNA-seq data back a couple of weeks ago, and I've just been kind of like starting to look at the results. And I think that kind of real excitement and discovery kind of comes out in those moments. So looking at like oh well maybe maybe this gene might be like a key player in and what's happening when somebody's disrupted um that kind of stuff is is still pretty exciting for me
0: and just like wrapping up a study I feel like is also really rewarding like we have one person left for this study that's been going on for a couple of years just to get through and I feel like at the end it's going to be probably very similar to how Harry Potter felt when Voldemort <laughs> died
1: can you really make harry potter references
0: (laughs) i'm trying
1: (laughs) i i understand what you're saying though i feel like you might have to throw some confetti after that participant gets out of your desk dexa
0: yeah just like ron and hermione did at their wedding (laughs) they probably celebrated a bit too
1: i don't think we knew about their wedding (laughs) (laughs) also you're gonna have to put a spoiler alert on these episode notes
0: but the books have been out for, what, 15 or 20 you, you years? You always have
1: to put a spoiler alert. You, uh, I, I mean, I got a really major plot point of Harry Potter spoiled for me, so I'm always going to be mad about that kind of stuff.
0: But how old were you?
1: I'm um, like 17. And it was like uh, the weekend after the book came out and they, they spoiled it. Like, So nobody had really had a chance to read it before they were watching that show. Right. I was mad.
0: So this is 13 years later. Okay, and I don't. okay
1: okay <laughs> also you're not really referencing a real thing because there is no information about a wedding so
0: it's just like I'll be celebrating just like Hagrid and his uh, dog did when they went to go meet the tree folk people uh, in Aragorn in Lord of the Rings as well uh it's all made up I'm just trying to come up with something
1: nonsensical combination references
0: yeah that's mostly what this podcast is about <laughs> um so it's yeah it's neat that you're like wrapping up your work and just like julia and jevin and me you do a lot of like side hustles i feel like sometimes you should possibly make money sometimes also you should expand your horizons you are actually writing science every once in a while currently Um, for a newspaper so I was gonna ask you what is it actually like to write science for a publication
1: well this has been a really unique experience because I'm specifically writing for a rural newspaper and admittedly I have not been to the town it's in it's in Denmark Wisconsin Um, I was hoping to travel there and then I you know the pandemic was happening and I thought maybe not the moment to start coming into local communities but it As described by the editor, he said that the folks there tend to be maybe a little bit hesitant about science and um worried about you know trusting it so I'm writing to an audience that I've never written to before even if I'm kind of writing to the general public I wouldn't necessarily assume that there's just an immediate distrust of me or what I'm doing or what I'm saying so it's taken a lot of really delicate wording and a lot of just thought when I'm when I'm writing something especially I've I've done some pieces on um, COVID vaccines, for example, that I'm trying really hard to make sure I'm not speaking like from the ivory tower and I'm really speaking in a really open, honest way that would be, um, hopefully maybe the people would be receptive to, um, even if maybe they have traditionally been kind of hesitant about scientists writing things for them.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really respectable to just try it out and see. And hopefully you get some people that are tuning in and are appreciating it. Do you feel like you, you won't necessarily see the results of that? Is that like concerning or is just like, I'll try it out and hope for the best
1: yeah i mean it is kind of like i wish i could go to denmark and just like walk around and be like did did anybody read this article what, what does everybody think you know i uh i was really hoping that there would just be an outpouring of of thank you emails to me saying you know i didn't think i was gonna you know care about this health or science topic and now i do um but i at least have to imagine that you know even if, if one person saw one of my articles and and learned something from it i feel like it would be worth it for me because I don't want the academic kind of ivory tower idea to mean that people get excluded from engaging in science. So if I can engage just one person, I think that's worth it for me.
0: Yeah. And you've got a lot of good practice, I think, pulling in all the other groups that you've done on campus, whether it's like kind of policy writing, you've also help with like another podcast. Yeah. Do you think like you are starting to figure out the specific path in science communication that you want to go? Do you think you are trying to stay more broad?
1: Oh, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that, I mean, I feel like a broken record talking so much about the pandemic, but I think it was a real defining moment for me because I, you know, I've always liked health science communication specifically, and admittedly, I never would thought I would be that interested in infectious disease type of science communication for public health because I always was more interested in chronic disease. Um, but I think just overall that my, my science communication skills that I will probably pursue will be most related to the kind of research that I like. So the, how the environment impacts our bodies and our health. Um, that that's the kind of work that I would like to be doing. I, I don't want to keep it so broad. You know, there are certain things, like you said, I would have never done a lot of science with insects, for example. So even though I theoretically could have a, a career if that, you know, was part of it, I could do the reading. But there are certain topics that are just definitely more near and dear to my heart that I would love to be able to communicate for.
0: Good. I'm glad you like that. <laughs> I do not want to do that. <laughs> so it's like an, a good balance. We'll need people um, in all aspects. Of science communication, I'm thinking like, okay. In your response, like, what aspect do I like? And I think it's talking to scientists and uh, bullshitting about Harry Potter. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's that's. I think that's my specialty. Yeah, yeah. And then still going with like the kind of side hustle motif. Do you want to leave a legacy?
1: Like in my in my time and as a PhD student or my science career.
0: Let's do both.
1: Wow. I mean, I've never really thought about it in terms of a legacy. I mean, I think that I've thought about it especially coming from um uh, working at the kind of up close, like I don't know, uh thousand foot view of public health versus like individual level health and, and physiology. I think My interest has always been where I can make the biggest impact. Um, I don't necessarily think of it in terms of I need to have a legacy about it. But if I can be, you know, helping with science communication or helping, um, you know, policy decisions be made that are high level, big impact, I think that's what my ultimate goal is. So if nobody knows my my name at the end of it, that's That's not as big of a deal to me, but I definitely want to uh, have some kind of an impact, uh, positive impact on people's health. Hopefully that's a goal.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're probably doing it now, even with like that one rule of publication. Like you said, if you are reaching out to one person, you then have changed someone's health, most likely for the better. Do you see yourself um staying within like one field or do you think you'd be like changing and bouncing around to all different sorts of things
1: um I I could kind of imagine I mean I think that the idea of uh especially my parents generation of you pick a job and then that is your job you know forever I think that that's how I used to think about it but then I mean I've been in college this whole time but watching my friends kind of explore careers and recognizing that it can be a dynamic process. And I I, I see my career path maybe you know, being in a similar topic area, but maybe doing it from different perspectives. You know, if there's some kind of nonprofit work that I might be interested in, but also there might be something sort of similar, but doing it from an industry perspective or government, um, there are a lot of things I think I could have a lot of fun doing. So I don't necessarily want to limit myself to finding a position with, you know, one organization and just, you know, coasting from there on out. I don't necessarily see myself doing that.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think there's also something to being a millennial. I, you know, I, I think I actually went through the the stages of grieving about being a millennial on this podcast with Julia Jevin. And now I, I'm just like accepting it <laughs> with, with you. Um, but I think like there's also kind of a little bit of an outside pressure for us to always have a plan B just in case. And so I think there's there's a lot of opportunities where it can be flexible and like had that mindset of moving on to the next great thing. Um, and also at least in a little bit of my mindset and it seems probably like Julia's and Jevons um, that there's also a bit of fear because like a job could disappear. And, and part of me, I think learning especially on like the academic side um with grants that could wrap up in like a year or two or a funder kind of dropping out there is a little bit of wanting some extra job security even if it means another job completely i don't know if you feel if that resonates for you or anything like that
1: you know i think it's just an interesting position to be in because i think our generation and with, you know, our proximity to the recession that we were kind of coming of age during. And I know I watched a lot of my friends come out of undergrad and there just weren't really jobs that made sense for them at the time. I I had a lot of friends who graduate undergrad and then were working at restaurants again. So I think, you know, that probably informed my perspective on this to a certain extent. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I've been like really worried about it.
0: Yeah, and that's—I mean—if you haven't, great. <laughs> then you've
1: just what? What kind of grieving are you talking about specifically?
0: Oh, just being a m- millennial.
1: Just, <laughs> anything in particular? <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I you know going back to that middle school, high school desire of just like wanting to not be in a large scale group. I was just like, I don't necessarily feel like I'm a millennial, um, but I think I am. Um, so
1: maybe you're just saying that because of all the the bad publicity and all of the I don't know millennial has become like a dirty word but ultimately it just describes a, a generation of people so it can be whatever you make it Ben
0: it does uh yeah uh I think that it was definitely a dirty word but then like there's more evidence coming out that oh we're actually doing a pretty good job as a generation and being pretty smart too I just didn't I don't think I wanted to be clustered in people
1: it's kind of an inevitability
0: here yeah it's true but Uh, being
1: part of a group can be a good thing sometimes i think that i we all have come up with kind of like solutions as a kind of a disconnected but common thread threaded group
0: yes yeah that's true all right i'm gonna go to um some more open-ended questions for you i haven't asked this in a while uh do you have a favorite failure?
1: Mm, I wouldn't say that I have one specific failure, but I think that the whole process of being in grad school, like getting into grad school, taking the GRE, and and uh, interviewing with different universities, and, and speaking with different researchers and other prospective students, I think, and then being in grad school with these other students has been extremely humbling. I, I didn't necessarily have like a big moment of failure, but I think that it definitely helped me recognize, I mean, I think a lot of people, a lot of all of us who end up in grad school, we're kind of always the high achievers, um, in our, you know, undergrad classes and whatever high school for some people. But then once you get to grad school, it's kind of, you're working with a group of everybody's equally passionate and everybody has, you know, these extreme, like these very talented groups of individuals. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been very humbling. It it definitely makes me recognize like kind of the I don't know the ivory tower gets such a bad rap too but it is a pretty cool thing to be part of all of this kind of innovation in everybody's minds in academia
0: yeah it is a weird like you know we've both been in school probably we're in like 20 i think if we're in like 24th grade <laughs> at this point something like that i know it's not easy to hear Ugh. um <laughs> This this is part of your grieving process. I'm just you know laying this out right now, but it is it's neat and also bizarre to be in this world that's just like continual learning and be surrounded by these people and also just have that become your baseline, um, which is cool, but it also probably has some disadvantages too when you go out into the world with interacting with other people. Like it is like you said, like the ivory tower, and it's a it's a double edge. You can be challenged pretty consistently. But also you can lose touch with reality what is something you did recently that's uncharacteristic of you
1: Mm, that's also a good question um let's see i tried i tried paddle boarding for the first time the other day which i had had on my on my bucket list after moving to madison four years ago i had kept wanting to to go out they make it so easy you can go rent a paddleboard or kayak or anything you want on the water for like an hour a couple hours um, and yeah, usually I'm I'm pretty hesitant to to just like go out and do something new without any pre planning. But one uh one day last weekend I was just like, All right, this is how I'm spending my Saturday and uh I really loved it. As it turns out, paddleboarding is quite fun and it's not as scary as it looks.
0: It's really nice. And uh, during a super hot day, it's a great way to just like, kind of cool down.
1: I know. I kind of wanted to fall off because I just needed to like get in the water. I eventually ended up jumping off of it. I, I think I had also been misled about this because my dad had tried to learn to paddleboard a couple of years ago, and he told me it was the most impossible thing he's ever done. <laughs> and he just couldn't stand up on it. So I sent him a picture and he was like, this is Photoshop. This has got to be photoshopped. How did you do that? So now the next thing is I got to get my dad out there.
0: Yeah, the whole sport of paddleboarding is just it's big paddleboard. Somehow they invented it. All of the images <laughs> are photoshopped. No one has a- actually done it. But if occasionally someone buys a board, then like it's enough to keep them in business.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's sponsored by REI. It's part of the, you know, outdoor lifestyle zeitgeist.
0: <laughs> yeah. OK, and then I, I have not asked this question to anyone, so I'm curious um, how this will go. But what do you look forward to?
1: Uh, in the long term or in the short term?
0: Whatever comes to mind.
1: Hmm. I would say that I look forward to kind of the spring and summer weather every year. Like, this is definitely my favorite time of year, even if I'm not, you know, going paddleboarding every day, just being able to work outside on my porch or, you know, spend time in my little garden box. Anything that I can be doing in the warm weather, I look forward to every year. I feel like there could be a better like short term answer to that. I really enjoy thrift shopping and I really look forward to sometimes if I'm having a long day, that'll be like my kind of uh, reward is I'll go uh, spend a little bit of time thrifting after I have got enough hours of work in. So that's a good way to motivate myself.
0: Yeah, it's also pretty nice. I feel like your season's answer is a good way to stay in the present and just appreciate like natural changes. Are pumpkins i mean i i love and adore pumpkins but are they a like harbinger of seasons that you don't like that are on the way
1: yeah kind of i was literally at the grocery a couple of days ago and i realized that their halloween stuff was out and i was like "Ah." i mean i actually do like halloween in the fall but i also know that it is the uh the marker of the oncoming winter and that's uh the, the, the season I'm not looking forward to as much so yes you're spot on
0: <laughs> yeah the orange orange spheres of doom
1: uh. <laughs> alright
0: I am going to move on to our improv game so I haven't told you what we're doing uh, before I do I need three suggestions from you so, first, I need a type of surgery.
1: Gallbladder removal.
0: Then, I need uh, one of your favorite sweets.
1: Chocolate chip cookies.
0: So, also, for the listeners, um, I took an improv class uh, two years ago, I
1: think. 2019. Um, no, it was 2020.
0: It was It, it was, was right, right before, before the, the pandemic because
1: we were in Wimmer and it was right when they had their first COVID patient. We had like the ninth person no, known in the United States.
0: Yeah, that was fun. And they were in a small room together.
1: <laughs> the patient wasn't in the room with us. They were in the hospital connected to Wimmer.
0: We went to go perform for them. That's the class.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's not airborne or anything, they said.
0: Yeah, then that point was like, just don't touch surfaces. So all that to say, you were also in the improv class with me, which helped kickstart this whole idea of having improv on the show. Um, no pressure, but uh, a fun little thing for the listeners that Lauren was also very fun to improv with, doing different scenes. And now that we have our choices selected, here's what we're going to do. So we both enjoy, I think, talking about science and spreading that to other people. You've written a little bit. I have done, I guess, I will technically call this broadcasting science Mm -hmm. on on the podcast. Um, So what we are going to do is basically pitch new stories of some new phenomenon that is kind of related to science to the world. As an example, I will go first and I will have to, like, on an evening news show, report about this new thing that is happening. And the thing that I am talking about, is that all dogs have learned to perform gallbladder surgery (laughs) spontaneously. And I'm giving the report on this. If you want, we can add another level. If you want to be like the anchor of the show and then pit and swing it to me. And then I can take it from there. (laughs) Okay, sure. All right whatever you want.
1: (laughs) All right. Thanks for the weather, Diane. And next, we're going to talk to Ben Rush about something new that dogs have been trained to do.
0: Well, thanks, Lauren. Yes, I'm here to tell you something new about dogs tonight. About seven days ago in Massachusetts, the first dog performed gallbladder surgery on a human. And then after that, waves of Dogs all across the country started performing gallbladder surgery. They waltzed into the hospitals, started slicing people open, and successfully transferring or removing their gallbladder. So, make no bones about it. These dogs are a serious contender for surgeons' jobs. It is making some surgery associations in the United States a bit worried. Uh, They are barking up the wrong tree, you might say, (laughs) as these new furry companions of ours can also make sufficient surgeons. And what the future has in store for the surgeons and also for these surgeon dogs is uh, to be answered in the future.
1: (laughs) Thanks, Ben.
0: (laughs) Okay. Now, yours is... We have recently learned that the center of the Earth is made of molten chocolate chip cookies.
1: <laughs> okay, are you gonna are you gonna uh, introduce my segment?
0: I can be a news anchor. Yeah. All right, here on Channel Six News, we have an exciting new report from our anchor in the field, Lauren Schrader. Please tell us what you got.
1: Thanks, Ben. So today, geologists all over the world are perplexed as they were carrying out routine core sampling studies and found that, in fact, the material that they were expecting to be organic and mineral-based was, in fact, a dessert. One of the core samples up in Greenland at the facility studying the core of the Earth, they can access it there, Uh, They pulled out the core and at the bottom was one perfectly proportioned chocolate chip cookie. Originally the scientists thought that someone had just left part of their lunch in the core sampling tubes, but in fact they did more core samples and continued pulling out various parts of chocolate chip cookies. Scientists don't have any answers yet as to how we are just now realizing this or how this could have happened as this is something that humans invented but they are calling in chronic disease epidemiologists to see if it could connect with the ongoing obesity epidemic more to come on this as it develops, Ben.
0: All right. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> I like that you were going with like organic stuff in the center and it's like, Oh, or, you know, Yeah, well in all sincerity, Lauren, it's been a pleasure to learn more about you. Have you on the podcast? And thanks for being on here.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And uh, thanks for doing what you do.
0: Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data. I hope you agree that the team working on this podcast is stellar. I'm honored to work with everyone on the team and feel truly lucky to know each one of them on a personal note, too. Don't get gallbladder surgery from your dog, but do spread the word of this podcast and others. Until next time, be well. Deeper Than Data was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Social media management by Jevin Lorty, branding by Lauren Trader, and website development by Lauren Trader and Julian Epper. pew pew <phys> yeah. pew 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 pew